please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Ephesians 5, 18. We come this morning to the concluding message the Lord willing, of our long series of sermons on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Before we read the text, I want simply to make two comments. First of all, again, as we've stated in previous series on this very vital and precious subject, we are concentrating most of our study on understanding what it is that the Spirit of God is and what he does, his person and his work. In the latter portion or segment of our study, we've been focusing almost exclusively on the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer, in those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ and have embraced him with a whole heart in faith in him and him alone for all their salvation. He is the gift of God to everyone who believes in Jesus, and he has taken up his abiding presence in every one of them. And so we've been concentrating on the biblical doctrine of what it means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. As a result of that concentration, there have been many who have been among us who are strangers to grace, who are not Christians, who have not embraced Christ, who have never come to believe upon him with the heart unto salvation. And so we have not been directing the central portion of our comments to you, but to the Church of Christ. Please, though, because of that, do not assume that we're not concerned with you or your soul's need. It is our conviction that what we've preached and what we need to preach needs to be done, but that we still, along with it, cry to God for your sake, that even as we speak on these holy doctrines, some of them may spill over as it it were into your own heart, and conviction may come upon you that you do not know God, and that you're living apart from the Spirit of God who dwells in those and with those who are His. And so again this morning, as we focus on this subject of the filling of the Spirit in the believer, we do not wish for you not to pay attention who do not know Christ, but for you to ask God that he may make these eternal matters pure and precious to your own heart. The second comment I wish to make is one that is a disclaimer in a sense or a qualification of my own preaching of such a subject as the filling of the Spirit. Even in my preparations for preaching this subject, I was all the more aware of how little I know about what I preach and how unfamiliar in the depths of my heart I am about what it all means to walk full of God the Spirit. I make no pretense to stand before you today as the epitome of example of having attained a consistent walk in this matter. The temptation would be not even to attempt to preach it as a result of that knowledge. It is not knowledge of which I'm 
uh, newly familiar. I've been aware of that fact for years. I've labored and struggled in this, in this business for years. But just preparing it again and going again through the text and thinking on these issues has stricken me even more deeply as to, in one sense, my own disqualification to deal with this as well as it ought to be dealt. On the other hand, I'm familiar enough with not only the truth of the Scripture, but also with the experience of walking with God, that I believe it would be irresponsible and sinful for me not to preach it faithfully to you. I only come to you as one who with you longs for more of a conscious experience with the God who has saved me and desire that you understand that even as you hear me and put your ears to these things as though you were hearing the Lord himself and not so much a man who himself is of like passions as you. Having made those two comments, now read with me this verse. And be not drunken with wine, wherein is riot, but be filled with, or literally in, the Spirit. Be not drunken with wine, wherein is riot, but be filled in the Spirit. Again, please, let's bow together and pray and ask for the Lord's help in this doctrine. Our Father, you have yourself witnessed with your own ears our confession of need. And even as we long for more of the felt presence and laboring of your Spirit in us and through us, we this morning pray that you would supply him to us in preaching, that we may speak the truth, that we may speak it as it ought to be spoken, that we may hold nothing back of the truth for sinful motive, and that those who hear us may be given ears of spiritual hearing, so that what they hear may settle on the heart and take up residence there. And our Father, we ask that this church may, by virtue even of things heard today, be more consistently acquainted with that experience of fullness in your spirit about which your word speaks. O Lord our God, would you allow us to handle such holy things and pray for your spirit to come and help, and not by virtue of your promise and the blood of your Son, come and hear us and answer us. Now, O Lord, because you have promised that to those of your children who ask, you would give your Spirit, come now and grant that in this ministry he may be our portion, opening our eyes to the truth, melting our hearts before you, and molding us more and more into the image of your Son our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. By way of brief introduction, I remind you that the gift of the Holy Spirit in, to the believer 
is a once-for-all event. God gives to everyone who comes to his Son in faith his Spirit to abide in that person unto the end. He will never leave nor forsake utterly the believing saint. There is one gift of the Spirit or one giving of the Spirit to the Christian. There is one baptism of the Spirit, with the Spirit, in the Spirit, by the Spirit. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so there is the foundation laid for our faith and in our faith and in our experience the completed work of the once for all giving of the Spirit to the believer in Christ. But second, as we have seen, there is the ongoing incomplete work of the Spirit in the believer. Though every believer possesses God the Spirit in, in him and in whom every believer experiences the indwelling permanent gift of the Spirit and his person and his work, there is this dynamic reality. In by nature of his indwelling, he may be diminished in his influence, grieved, quenched. His influences, his work in us may grow dim, even as coals on a fire may grow dim near on to, to going out. Or he may be as well increased and increasing in his influence in the believer. This is the ongoing and incomplete work of the Spirit in the Christian. And so to remind us, there's one baptism, and that occurs in everyone who comes to Christ. Everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ has been baptized by one Spirit into one body, never to be departed, left by that Spirit, utterly alone and orphaned. But there, are, there is an ongoing ministry of the Spirit in the believer whereby he continually is supplied in increasing measures until we reach the day of glory when Christ returns. Now, to lay out this subject for us this morning, I want us first of all to notice some instances in the book of Acts where men were filled with the Spirit then I want us to concentrate in the second place on this text in Ephesians 5.18 regarding the distinction that is in this text from the instances that we'll note in the book of Acts and then seek to identify and define the filling of the Spirit according to its nature. <coughs> and then in that nature or in that definition and identification of the filling of the Spirit to draw some implications and to summarize our comments and bring it home to the heart. First of all, then, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts, the second chapter. As we survey in the New Testament the doctrine of the filling of the Spirit as it occurs in some of the notable instances and people in the book of Acts. First of all, in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Speaking of those disciples, some 120 who were gathered together during that period between the Lord's ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit, 
gathered together in a place of in one accord, waiting on God, spending, giving themselves to prayer and to that, that spiritual exercise of obeying Christ to tarry in Jerusalem till the power of God be poured out upon them. In the first three verses, we see the experience of the pouring out of the Spirit and the phenomena that accompanied that pouring out. A mighty wind, sound such like a, a great rushing wind from heaven, filling all the house where they were sitting, appearing upon them, tongues like fire, parting asunder on each one of them, sitting down upon each one. And in verse 4 we read, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, literally with other languages than the one they had become accustomed to speaking in growing up. Languages that most of them, no doubt, had never studied an extraordinary supply of God the Spirit on these gathered disciples to be enabled to speak the Word of God in languages they had not studied. A miraculous provision by God. And it says, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Then turn again with me to chapter 4 in the book of Acts, verse 31. <coughs> After Peter and John had been released from imprisonment, and returned to their brethren who were in prayer. The church was offering up prayers continually for them. They returned to them, and the church then, rejoicing in this deliverance by God, set itself again to pray, and as this company prayed, they reminded the Lord of the threatenings that had been made against his servants, well aware of the powers and the rulers of this world, quoting Psalm 2 in order to encourage their own hearts, repeating back the promises of God that there is a reason that the heathen rage and the nations take counsel against the Lord and his anointed. And then in verse 29, they cry to God, Lord, look upon their threatenings and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness. The thing that got them put in jail, they're being threatened not to do it, or they'll be punished again. Lord, notice the threats. And rather than remove the threat by taking away from them the, the deed that gets them in trouble, increase their boldness to continue to do the thing that has gotten them in trouble. And then it says in verse 30, While you stretch forth your hand to heal, signs and wonders done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Then in verse 31, in answer to their prayer, these people who had already received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit once for all, back on the day of Pentecost, and now apparently with a greater company gathered together, when they had prayed, the place was shaken wherein they were gathered together, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Then turn again with me to Acts chapter 6, verse 5. In the appointment of the first deacon in the early church, 
Verse 5 says, as the multitude heard the decision by the apostles, the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. One of the qualifications for those deacons was that they be men filled with wisdom and with the Holy Spirit. So we see Stephen, a man full of the, of the Holy Spirit. And the impression here is that Stephen, to a degree perhaps even more so than these other six, was so fill, full of the Spirit that it was the marking characteristic of his daily life at that time among the disciples. You just thought of him, and as soon as the name Stephen hit the ear, you thought, that man is full of the Holy Spirit. And then again and later in the chapter, verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, wrought great wonders and signs among the people. I accompany this description to his being full of the Spirit, full of grace and full of power. A man steeped in his continuing life and habit in the presence and the supply and the knowledge and the delight of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. And then you see evidence of that as throughout chapter 7, Stephen preaches that wonderful, powerful, and bold sermon to the enemies of God in Jerusalem, standing to their face and eventually looking them in the eye and saying, You stiff-necked and stubborn of heart, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. And then that statement uh, evoked their ire, and they slew him with stones. But notice the connection so far in all three of these references, in chapter 2, the two references, and then this with Stephen, that in each case, when they were filled with the Spirit, they spoke the Word of God with boldness. There is the speaking and the preaching of truth accompanying this filling of the Spirit in each case so far. Then look again back at chapter 4, verse 8, at Simon Peter. Verse 3, it tells us that they laid hands on these apostles, put them in ward till the morrow, and it was evening. But still many believed who heard the word, and the number of the men came to about five thousand. And on the morrow the rulers and the elders and the scribes were gathered in Jerusalem, and all this pomp and circumstance with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and as many as were the kinfolk of the high priest, when they had set these little, little puny disciples down in the midst of this great company of official, religious, powerful leaders who had their life and death in their hands, sit them down in the midst, they asked, by what power, or in what name, or by what authority have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, you rulers of the people and elders, and so forth. And then he declared to them again, the truth as it is in Jesus, with great boldness. Now remember the setting. They're in jail. They're under arrest. Their lives are hanging by a thread. And here they are, set down in the midst of this company of pompous religious power. The power of Jerusalem. All the authority. And they ask them a simple question. In what authority do you do what you're doing? 
everybody knows what authority we, we've got. We've got God's authority. Now, whose authority do you have to do what you're doing? And then the Spirit, as it were, came upon Peter and filled him. And he looked into the faces of these men, threatening his very life by his answer. And he preached the same thing that got him arrested in the first place. Again, notice the connection between the filling of the Spirit and bold preaching of the truth as it is in Jesus. And then, look at chapter 13 with me in verse 9. The Apostle Paul, or Saul, this is in this experience with Sergius Paulus and Elymas, they had been sent forth in verse 4 from Antioch by the Holy Spirit, had gone to Seleucia, had sailed to Cyprus, had come to Salamis and preached the word of God in verse 5 in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, or John Mark as their attendant. And when they had gone through the whole island under Paphos, found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of understanding. The same called unto him Barnabas and Saul, and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn aside the proconsul from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fastened his eyes on him, and said, O full of all guile and all villainy, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And then he pronounced a prophetic utterance upon him of his blindness, and he fell into a mist and a darkness, and when he went about as a dumb man seeking somebody to lead him by the hand, and that all the more brought the proconsul to a faith in a confident confidence in the Lord's power and he believed being astonished at the teaching of the Lord again note the close proximity between the filling of the spirit and the direct and bold proclamation and application of the truth of Christ to, to opponents and to those who need most desperately to hear it now there are some instances of men being filled with the Spirit, and in each of these cases, directly accompanying or accompanied by or followed by increased boldness in the gospel preached and applied. But turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and again look at the text. There is, I believe, in this text a distinction. between what we've just read and what Ephesians 5 is talking about. Not a distinction in result, not even a distinction in source, but a distinction nonetheless. He says in verse 18, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is riot, but be filled with the Spirit. I direct your attention to the word be filled. It is in the original language a continuous present tense. 
It literally means be being filled continuously. Be about the lifestyle of being filled. Always be being filled with the Spirit. Now the phrase with the Spirit literally is in spirit. We believe it to be referring to the Holy Spirit and His work upon the heart. But it's translated, be filled with the Spirit in many translations. I believe it would be more appropriate to translate it to be filled in the Spirit. To be filled in the Spirit. And that'll help us, I believe, in explaining the biblical doctrine and its meaning. The distinction here in Ephesians 5 from what we've read in Ephesus or in Acts is simply this. The filling of the Spirit spoken of by Paul in this text is not limited to an event once in a while. Not to a one-time event, nor to an extraordinary, very seldom and rare experience that comes upon a few men once in a while with attendant miraculous signs for unusual circumstances. The filling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 is a duty of perpetual responsibility. It is to be the experience and portion of the Christian all the time. Be being filled. He is not addressing a group of select few spiritual giants and saying, from time to time, as the need may be, hope and pray that you can get some of the things you've learned by hearing that happened to Paul and Peter and Barnabas and the early church. That's not the address and that's not the mind of the apostle. He is addressing an entire church. And through them we believe an entire region of churches, if this was a circular letter, which we think it probably was. And he's saying that the general experience of every Christian should be the filling in the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit. The filling with the Spirit. The continuing duty to be filled. Now that sets it a bit apart from the, may we say, rather unusual and some may think strange things we read in the book of Acts. He being full of the Holy Ghost spoke the word. He being filled with the Holy Spirit preached and spoke. And you see it as sort of uh, going along uh, in the ordinary and then one day the God, the Spirit, comes upon a man in an unusual essence and power and he does something that ordinarily you wouldn't expect him to do. But in Ephesians 5, this is a duty laid upon every believer as the ongoing pattern of his life. He's to be about the business of being filled with the Spirit. Well, if that's the case, let us descend to a bit closer analysis of this doctrine in Ephesians 5 to identify exactly what we mean by being filled with the Spirit or being filled in the Spirit. And we'll identify it in two ways. First, simply to state what it is not. And then, by studying its nature and its effects, we'll attempt to define what it is. First, what it is not. The filling of the Spirit is not a high on Jesus. It is not 
a replacement for a trip on LSD. In the Jesus movement, so-called, historically, back in the first part of the 70s, the last part of the 60s, when I was a college student and a seminary student, it was not unusual at all, in my experience, to be in a Christian school and to have come into that Christian school a great host of long hair. In 1971 and 72, our seminary was literally sprinkled with the hippie movement. People who, out of the hippie movement, had become professing Christians. The style of their hippiedom did not leave them. And in their new enthusiasm for Christ, they all went to some school to prepare for some Christian ministry. And it was not unusual at all to speak to those brethren or those people and have them using the same language as the hippies, dressed in the same style. It was a shock to the seminary to have our all-school required assembly attended by guys in their sandals, in their open shirts, and in their beads, and their hair hanging down on their shoulders, all preparing for Christian ministry in the leading Protestant denomination in the world. And for some of us more conservative types, it was a bit, we had to adjust a bit. Now, we did adjust. Uh, I think we shouldn't have adjusted as quickly and as well as we did. I think we should have demanded a bit more transformation. But we did adjust and adapt perhaps in, in our uh, good intentions and in our ignorance. But these people came over and many of them used hippie language to describe their Christian experience. And one of the phrases they were prone to use was, I'm high on Jesus. And just a few months before, they were high on something else. And now they found that that was not enough anymore, and they began to look for a fuller experience. And they found it in Jesus. And that led, by the way, to some of the later versions of I found it mentality, in which folks are satisfying to a world looking for something, the answer. What are you looking for? I found it. Ask me, I'll tell you how to get it. And you'll see in some of the popular literature and evangelistic witnessing literature of some of the leading uh, organizations for evangelism in the world, a simplistic approach to witnessing, a little booklet that tells you four steps you can take to getting all that get right with God, and then a second follow-up booklet, if you follow the four steps and get that experience of being saved, then you can go the second step and have the Holy Spirit. And the second booklet has a picture of a dove on the front, and it's the booklet regarding the spirit-filled life. And it's a simple process then of moving into that upper echelon of Christian experience, simply asking God, you get the Spirit, now you've got both things. And the purpose for that second experience is so you can take the booklet in the first experience and go out and get results with it. The whole ministry has to do with winning souls to Christ and getting them to decide for Christ. So the Spirit will come and help you be a better soul winner. Now the motivation, I don't question Please understand, I'm not ridiculing sincere efforts to win people to Christ or a desire to be filled with the Spirit or a recognition that Christians need to be filled with the Spirit. I'm simply describing that the language that was associated with that hippie movement and growing out of it and then producing things like I found it and reducing an experience with God to a commodity that can be peddled by an experienced or a skilled Christian mechanic 
who can transpose to you the thing he himself knows and has, and all you need to do is agree with some statements in a book, make a statement yourself, and you're in, all that psychology grows out of misunderstanding the holy nature of the filling of the Spirit and the nature of knowing God. Having a high on Jesus is not the point. The Lord is not anxious to see that all of his children float about eight inches above the ground. He put our feet on the ground and wants us to learn to function in a holy way in that posture. Walking, not floating in the Spirit. So it's not a high on Jesus. In fact, the Spirit-filled life, if we may use that terminology because it's what we're familiar with, often is accompanied by greater loathing of sin, grief for sin, righteous indignation against the expressions of iniquity in our culture and in ourselves, as Jeremiah experienced a burning in the bones, which he could not shut his mouth from preaching, but had to preach even when people, nobody was listening. But his bones burned within him. He tried to get out of the ministry. Ask God to let the word take it out of him so he didn't have to preach to this rebellious generation. And he couldn't withhold, he couldn't win. The Lord won that battle and Jeremiah had to keep on preaching. Sometimes being filled with the Spirit causes Christians to do things that are not comfortable, are not high, are not feeling good. Sometimes it's it's always accompanied with a violent warfare in our soul. Do you expect that when Christ becomes more precious to you, the devil is going to back off forever? Do you expect he's happy with that turn of events? And that when he sees you beginning to get settled in your faith and confident in Christ, that he's going to say, oh, well, that guy's lost, let's forget him. That's not the way my, my old enemy, the devil, works. He comes when he sees you on the verge of a breakthrough and he throws all of his armaments at you. So, the Spirit-filled Christian is equated with warfare, struggle. The Bible says, weep with those that weep. Are we prepared to say that that is incongruent with a Spirit-filled life? To weep with those that weep? If you're high on Jesus, the way they meant it in those days that I heard it, you're incapable of weeping. In fact, I remember it distinctly many times having grief in my own soul, and I would go to some of those types for some fellowship and comfort, and all I would get would be bludgeoned by their happiness. They were so high that they couldn't feel any hurt that I had. They didn't have room for that in their theology. And what they normally did was condescended to me, patronized me, and said, what you need is the filling of the Spirit. Well, I would have welcomed such an experience if it would have helped me deal with my grief honestly and accurately. But they couldn't give it to me. All they could say was, your problem is such and such. It is not a spiritual high in the sense that most would think of it. It also is not a one-sided, extravagant intoxication. Being filled with the Spirit is not like being drunk with wine, in which you lose your control, your faculties become wiped out, and you start 
flitting around in all sorts of wild expressionism. When I said not a one-sided thing, I'm referring to the twofold nature of a spirit-filled life. There is the joy of Christ dig down deep and showing up and flowing out. Yes, there is. But it is never there without the accompanying, attending opposition to sin, fight against sin, grief with sin, and sensitivity to others that makes me enter into their grief, into their pain. A spirit-filled man is never devoid of sensitivity to other people, and he's able to weep with them as though he were feeling what they're feeling. There's discipline in his soul when the spirit is in control. So it's not an, a one-sided, extravagant intoxication. Some sort of an extraordinary, rare experience that if I could just find the key or the shortcut or the formula, I'd get it. Like the cult, the way, who literally sell, by selling money, uh, studies in how to speak with tongues. And if you pay enough money, you can move into the second level, into the third level, however many levels they have, and it'll actually teach you how to do these things if you got the money. Not much different from being in the Masonic Lodge. If you got the money, you can move up the degrees. Much, much similarity in those and those in the mentality of that peddling, not only the Word of God, but God Himself. The crassest form of blasphemous impiety. But we noted it is not intoxication. You may remember in 1 Corinthians 14, in verse 32, the scripture says, The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Well, in the modern day, a lot of people think that being filled with the Spirit means you're no longer in control of yourself. You're no longer responsible for what you say. When the Spirit comes, you just start, things just start happening and nobody knows what to expect next and some don't even know what they saw or heard. And especially the one that's experienced the phenomenon. He is no longer in control. The Spirit of God so controls him that when he opens his mouth, it is God speaking directly through him inspired, infallible words of revelation. And therefore, often people don't expect you've experienced it properly if there's a sense of rationality behind what you say. If you speak in your own language, they don't, they, they don't trust your experience. If you speak as though it's prepared, it must sound a little weird. It would be preferable to be in old King James language because that's a little out of context with our culture. Something that's different so they can believe you really got it. And you'll hear in some of these groups of mutual self-appointed prophets, they'll be speaking the words from God, and they'll speak in Old English. And everybody thinks, wow, that must be God. Because we know that God lived in the 16th century, and in no other. It never occurs to those very ignorant people that God didn't start out with King James and Elizabethan English. Nor did he stay with it. It never occurs to them that that period of history is not in itself the period of the Holy Spirit. But they think that if they speak that way, it makes them feel that it must be of God. It makes the surrounding groups feel it because they're familiar with that Bible version and it sounds holy. No, no. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. When he speaks, he's in control. It is God's word. But the prophet is not in some sort of ecstatic trance 
in which he himself cannot possess his own body. That is contradictory to the filling of the Spirit. Is not the fruit of the Spirit self-control? So when you would expect then, if that's the case, that when the Spirit has an extra measure of influence on you, you wouldn't expect you to lose your control. You would expect a heightened sense of self-control. A man a bit more aware of his surroundings, a bit more sensitive to his audience, and certainly very keenly knowledgeable of, his, of the content of his message. Now, I'm not dealing here today with the whole phenomena of extraordinary revelation, which we saw happen in the book of Acts when they spoke with other languages, which we read about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and a bit in 1 Corinthians 13. We're not evaluating all that. Our church has taught on that in the past, and we have some tapes that can help you with that. All we're saying is that in Ephesians 5, the filling of the Spirit is not accompanied necessarily and is not primarily an extravagant, extraordinary, weird, wild kind of intoxication whereby you can say to a man, uh, you're not responsible for what you're saying because obviously God's in control. Some of us have been the, been the recipients of so-called ministries in which people laid on us words as though they were from God and said, I got this directly from God and I wanted to share it with you. And we sat in almost horror, thinking on the one hand, if I don't listen and heed it, I may not be listening to God. What if it's true? What if it really is from God? On the other hand, if I do listen to it and believe it's of God and this man's a charlatan, what am I getting into? And we're just sort of paralyzed in a, in a limbo if we have any rationality at all. Well, I'm saying to you that being filled with the Spirit is not intoxication. Let me read to you a little statement by Professor Edie on drunkenness. And I, there is a relationship here in the text. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is dissolution, riot, excess, and the literal word is asotia. The, the word riot or excess or dissolution, it's translated in various ways, is a word that literally means beyond saving. In or unsavability. Given up to destructive course of life. It literally means that a man has put himself into a course of life in which ordinarily he's beyond redemption. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is so throwing your life away that ordinarily you'll never be retrieved. That's the result of going after the wine when it turns, when it's red, when it's got its biting effect, looking for the effects that wine gives you, going after the spirits in the bottle because of what it does to you. And when that begins to be your search, you'll begin to fall into this trap. Well, here's what Edie describes in his little commentary on Ephesians, on page, I believe I got my page right, chapter 5, verse 18, this experience of the drunk man who has lost his power. There is such self-abandonment in the vice of intemperance, there is in it that kind of dissoluteness which brooks no restraint which defiles, defies all efforts to reform it, and which sinks lower and lower into hopeless and helpless ruin. This tremendous sin of intemperance, 
is all the more to be shunned as its hold is so great on its victim that with periodical remorse there is periodical inebriety. And when the revulsion of a throbbing head and a sickening depression passes away, new temptation excites fresh desires, and the fatal cup is again coveted and drained, while character, fortune, and life are risked and lost in the gratification of an appetite of all others the most brutal in form and brutifying in result. There are few vices out of which there is less hope of recovery, and its hold is so tremendous. Now men go after things like booze or the increasing powerful drugs that we're becoming more familiar with in our day because men are looking to fill a void. Often they are pursuing that God-shaped void that Augustine says was put into every man's heart that can only be filled with God. And we have a generation that are so headlong set on filling that void that they're trying everything they can find. Our whole perverted culture, which has taken the legitimate expression of the male and the female body and gone so far with it to, great, to gratify the lowest sensual kinds of appetites, the least satisfying kinds of pleasures, a whole culture mad for sensuality in every form, an intemperate, totally out of control culture living for the next thrill, living for something better, something more. If you ever want to see a picture of this, just look closely at these Hollywood heroes. Just watch them. They know not how to function in their own identity. They live their lives being something they're not. Their whole world of fame and fortune is caught up in being other than what they are. Acting. Then they show up on some talk show and they're supposed to be themselves and they're so nervous, ill at ease. Most of them are just completely out of place. They don't know how to function. In fact, it's very disheartening to some of you who love to follow certain actors and actresses to see them in their real element when they show up on a talk show with their hair the way they ordinarily wear it instead of the way the, uh, Edith Head fixed it up in the makeup room. And when they sit there in front of some of these talk show hosts acting like idiots, unable to put two sentences together, using language that shows they've never even owned a dictionary, with a whole culture of stupidity surrounding them, and these are the heroes of our culture. You turn on the morning news, world news, and a lead headline may be about some actor who had a car wreck yesterday. When 25,000 people were killed on the highways last year by drunkenness alone. And never mentioned. Because our culture worships these goddesses and gods. Why? Because these people are the epitome of the pursuit of what they call happiness. What, the, what they think is what was meant by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration, but which is nothing more than sensual pleasure, and nothing ever satisfies until you have the next, and the better, and the more prolific. You would think they become happy eventually. These people have no limits to their places they can fly on a Friday night for a date. 
They don't take dates across town to the movie. They take them to the Riviera for the weekend. They fly them to dinner. Elvis Presley used to take an entourage in his private jet from Memphis to Dallas, rent a, rent a, a pinball machine center for the night, stay all night playing pinball with his guests. And then on the way home, don't give out the keys of several Cadillacs for them to drive. Thanks for coming. One night. And it was who, whatever the lucky girl was that he took with him on that particular... She lives to tell her grandkids about the night with Elvis. They, they, you'd think that if a guy has that much... I mean, if he's got those options laid before him, eventually the fellow would be happy. And where does he end up? We've glorified Woodstock again in the recent days. What have we glorified? Janis Joplin? Jimi Hendrix? Who shortly after that wonderful, memorable time in our nation's history killed themselves with drugs? And there are newsmen that want to bring those days back. Oh, the time when America came of age. What kind of nonsense is that? It comes from a generation given over to the pursuit of the thing represented in this statement, be not drunk with wine, wherein is unsavability. Brethren, if you've ever attempted to win a man who is already in his bottle, you know what I'm talking about. There's nothing more frustrating than to try to make sense to a man who everything you say is translated into his bottle, who everything he says comes out of a bottle, and you're talking to a bottle, and you can't get through to him. He cannot make a commitment to you because he's got a bottle at home he's got to go deal with first. He has a prior commitment. He's in love with another, another dear bride. He cannot leave and flirt with you for long. He'll tell you everything up to changing his life. Oh, that was good preaching. Oh, I needed that. Oh, I want to quit what I'm doing. Oh, I want to have what you people have. One more drink, please, before I go. Just one more. And you read the description in Proverbs. Redness of eyes. Sickness of stomach. Dissolution of bodily functions. And then it says the man wakes up. says, whoa, that was rough. I think I'll go try another one. That's the picture of this man. That path toward sensual delight ends up in a predicament from which very few are ever saved. Don't do that. There's an alternative. There's a contrast. There's something on the other side of this. What should you be giving yourself to? But, in opposition to this sensual pursuit, but, be being filled with the Spirit or in the Spirit. It is not intoxication. Being filled with the Spirit is not a description that is equivalent to being drunk with wine. He's not saying, be filled in the Spirit so that you can attain those sensual delights that you couldn't quite get with alcohol. He's not taking the Spirit as a substitute for alcohol. He's changing the whole format and arena and agenda. There's another whole world and way of life other than the sensual way of life. <coughs> There's the pleasure of this world, which is passing away. There's the pleasure of the world to come, which doesn't pass away. They are so different in kind that they cannot be compared. They're not the same thing at all. 
There's one on the one side which ends in unsavability. There's one on the other side which produces life and peace and righteousness and glory and blessing and delight and all the things you thought you wanted when you were over here. You give yourself to the things of the Spirit. You sow to the Spirit and you will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. You sow to the flesh and you will of the flesh reap corruption. There are contrasting worlds. But you see, the motive here is not that... Now, if you like being drunk, let's don't get drunk in the inward wine. Let's get drunk in the Spirit. That's not what he's saying. You like being out of control. You like feeling that loose high, that flagrant lack of responsibility for your actions. You can get that with the Spirit. That's not what he's saying. It's just, it couldn't be more different. Drunkenness and pursuing the sensual appetites does produce a total loss of control. But filling with the Spirit produces the opposite. Not intoxication whereby no one can hold you to what you said, but just the opposite. You know what you said. You're in control of what you're doing. The Spirit of the Prophet is subject to the Prophet. That's the Spirit-filled life. So we see what it's not, at least. What is it? And let's quickly examine the nature and the effects of being filled with the Spirit. Let me define it first with a working definition. <coughs> Literally, I believe we can say that to be filled in the Spirit is to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit in full measure. To be under the influence of the Holy Spirit in full measure. Now, the reason I don't use the word control which many good commentators use because of what it connotes in our own thinking. We think in terms of being controlled as having lost our faculties. And I, I want to avoid that because I, I want to continue to focus on the doctrine of the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. I am not looking for an experience in which I can get up in the morning and because I have this extraordinary little thing that's happened called the filling of the Spirit, I don't have to be vigilant today. God's in control. See? And so my wife comes in that morning, and maybe we both got off on the wrong side of the bed. I could never accuse her of this, but this just for hypothetical pretending. And my wife would come in and say a little word, a little edgy word. And she might bite, just, just not thinking how it's going to And maybe I'm a little on edge already, and she doesn't know how that bit. And... But see, I've already taken care of that. I had a little short prayer that said, Fill me with your spirit today. God's now in control. I've transferred the control of my life to the spirit of God. I don't have to worry about what I do. So I don't even give thought. I just act out and respond. I just do what comes naturally. And obviously I'm not going to sin because the spirit's in control. Well, you know what always happens when you approach it that way. When you give that generic prayer, Fill me with your spirit and be in control. I know I won't sin then. That's why your wife just comes in right there. To show you that that ain't the way you're going to get it done. So that's when the Lord puts that little pressure on and then you come out with some snotty remark to the bride of your delightful youth. The woman you're supposed to cherish, you're responding to her as though she's an enemy. And you snap her head off. You know, oh, breakfast ready yet? Pull your little sarcastic mouth out and pummel your wife right to the dust. And then you get confused. You say, wait a minute, Lord, I asked you five minutes before then to fill me with your spirit and control me. How? There's no point in being a Christian. I prayed and God didn't answer. You ever 
You ever had anybody talk to you like that sort of the way they be? Brethren, there are people in this room that have lived like that. They thought that this experience was something that just relieved me of those other texts of Scripture that fill the Scripture as to my personal responsibility in every specific. That's not the Spirit-filled life. It is not to be under control in such a way that I become a robot and now I can back off and somebody else pushes the buttons and I motor through my life righteously. And that's why I use the word under the influence of the Holy Spirit in full measure. That's our working definition. Well, quickly look with me at four elements of the nature of this experience. And again, when I use the term experience, I don't mean one-time experience, but the experience of the Christian's life. Living it out. First, the source of the filling of the Spirit. We've already suggested it. It's God. We're asking, we're being commanded to be filled in the Spirit. We're being asked to experience God to the full in His influence who lives in us. The source of that is the Spirit. Peter, being full of the Spirit, did so and so. And they were all filled with the Spirit, and then they did so and so. It is connected with the working of Almighty God upon the saints and the believers. Whatever it is we're talking about, it comes from God. It is not something you can make happen by yourself, with yourself, in yourself. It is, in its source, godly and of God. It is the filling of the Spirit in that sense. Well, I'm glad that it's a supernatural experience, because if it weren't, I could not live up to the standards that are required of me that grow out of the experience of being filled with the Spirit. The source is the Spirit of God. And therefore, brethren, by way of application, a part of the attainment of this ongoing experience must be prayer. Now, I'm not going to summarize, I'm not going to whittle that down to simply one time on January the 1st, you say, now this year, Lord, I want to be filled with the Spirit any more than I would suggest you pray over all your meals for the coming year. That's a daily thing. That's a constant thing. If the filling of the Spirit is a dynamic thing, if you can grieve Him in a moment, and if, you can, if there can be an increase, then it's a regular, continuing thing you need to be praying for. It's important to know that. The source is God, so it is to God we must apply if we wish to have this growing experience. But second, the root of this experience. And this is an interesting thing. You say, what's the difference between the source and the root? It's the same as the difference between the ground and the plant. The dirt is the source. The root is the tap which takes out of the source the nutrients needed for the plant. What is the root? Well, I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 and see an interesting thing. Now, we've already seen that accompanying this experience of being filled with the Spirit is speaking boldly in the name of Christ, at least in the instances we noted in Acts. In Colossians 3.16, though, there's a verse. This is, by the way, the parallel passage to the one we're reading in Ephesians. The same section. It's a, it's, you'll see the parallels if you read them closely. Well, you don't even have to read them closely. Verse 16 of Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ, or the Lord, dwell in you richly. And then he goes on expressing those attendant 
experiences that come with the word of Christ dwelling in them richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and so forth. Well, back to Ephesians 5. Verse 18. Be not drunken with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking one to another or to each other or among yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and so forth. And there's a parallel here between the texts. But one text says, be filled with the Spirit. The other says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, which is it? Why doesn't Paul and Colossians tell them about the Spirit-filled life? He doesn't even mention that. Or why doesn't he here in Ephesians 5 say, be filled with the word of Christ? I submit to you that the root of the Spirit-filled life is the same thing. It is the word of Christ. It is not two different things. It is another way of saying the same thing. To be filled with the Word of Christ is another way of describing to be full of the Spirit or filled in the Spirit. If you're filled in the Spirit of truth, what are you going to see? The truth having increased dominion over your behavior and influence in your life and expression from you. In both texts, the Word of Christ dwelling in you richly, being filled in the Spirit, followed by Mutual edification in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we'll examine that in just a moment. But the root of the experience is the word of Christ. You are not going to be filled with the Spirit outside a disciplined, meditative, living in the Scriptures. And if you are filled with the Spirit of God, you will grow in your consistent, meditative experience of the Scriptures. And others will see it. The root is the Word of Christ. Don't lose this. Don't fall into the trap of saying, well, I don't read my Bible every day, but I want to be filled with the Spirit. Lord, if you fill me with the Spirit, then, then I'll probably want to read my Bible. If I'm filled with the Spirit, it really doesn't matter whether I read my Bible. Because he'll tell me what to say. And doesn't Jesus tell us that the Spirit will tell you what to say in that day? Yeah, if you're an apostle and you're going to be arrested in that generation and be brought up to trial before those men, as we see in the book of Acts, happen. And what happened? The Holy Ghost came upon Peter and gave him what to say in that hour. Did he not? That's what Jesus was prophesying. doesn't mean that you can go through your life without reading your Bible and every time you need to know something, God will come and tell you. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And you're a spirit-filled person. You see the point? I hope you do. In the third, notice the effect. We've seen the source, God the Spirit, the root, the Word of Christ, the effect of being filled in the Spirit. And there are just two that I want to notice. First of all, to be filled in the Spirit is to know an increased worshipful spirit. An increased worshipful spirit. Verse 19 says, speaking one to another. Literally, brethren, I believe that should be translated speaking among yourselves. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart. And it's more than in. In fact, it should be with the heart. It's not 
speaking to yourself individually inside your heart privately. That is not what the text says. There's a translation that says in the heart that is, a, that is not a good translation of the language. It literally means among yourselves, from the heart, melodious, that's from the heart, speaking in psalms which are revealed scriptures in the Old Testament. Maybe there were some in the New, but I believe this could be limited to that. Hymns which are prepared messages in print, uh, poems and odes for the sake of worshiping and praising God, and spiritual songs which may include the extraordinary revelatory music that was given to the early church, and it also would include the writing of hymns like what we read this morning with Charles Wesley and others, as we are speaking in the manifold various ways of God-ordained truth from the heart in the context of mutual gathering and edification. To be filled with the Spirit is not to get an ability to have your own private prayer language in your closet to enjoy Jesus and nobody else knows anything about it and you don't care if they do. It is just the opposite in effect. It produces a worshipful spirit because we're singing, making melody from the heart. You see that worshipful spirit? But notice, with your heart, verse 19 is the last, to the Lord. Now remember, this is speaking among yourselves, and in Colossians, speaking one to another, admonishing and teaching each other, but how? With singing to God. Well, how can you do that? How can I sing to God and also sing to you? Well, it happens here every Lord's Day. We gather, we sing to God, and our very voices edify one another. There may be a reference here to the old antiphonal singing of the Old Testament, with one part of the congregation would sing one part of the text, another part of the congregation would answer back with another. And if you'll read the Psalms, you'll see that there are, many of them are written exactly, exactly that way. Some sort of responsiveness. I'm not pleading that that's the only way to do it, or that that's not the only way to do it, but it may be that that's included in the reference. But the point is that this singing to the Lord is to be edifying because it's grounded in God's truth. The word of Christ is welling up richly in a prepared and knowledgeable people who have not only learned the facts of the doctrines, but have prayed them into the heart so that when they gather, they're looking to God and worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And that worship in truth is mutually edifying. It teaches. It admonishes. It instructs. It comforts. It builds up the church. That's the filling of the Spirit. And its initial effects. A worshipful spirit. Verse 20 adds another factor in this worshipful spirit. Giving thanks. Always for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To God, even the Father. Worshipful spirit, giving praise to God, singing the truths of gospel reality to God, which are mutually edifying, and in all things, for all things, at all times, giving thanks to God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. An attitude of humble recognition that if anything good is in me or with me, God gave it. This is not just 
a giving of thanks at appointed times, it is a heartfelt experience of life which assumes all the time I owe everything I have that's good to God. A spirit of gratitude. As one called it, gratitude. An attitude of gratitude. That ought to permeate the life of God's people. Farthest thing in the mind from complaining, murmuring, griping, fussing. And brethren, on the Lord's day, it's hard enough for us to do this. This is hard. We're out of habit of doing it. We live in a culture of murmurers. An unclean-lipped people. We come to the Lord's day. It is not going to help the others of us if we want to make some comment about the worst, the latest bad weather, the latest tragic event, the latest political upheaval, brethren. Or griping about, well, I don't know if I'm going to make it this week. You know, I've got my... Lumbago, whatever they call it, my rheumatoid is working up. That kind of stuff is not in context with giving of thanks. So you have to discipline yourself for the sake of the brethren when you come to church. Have that spirit about you that if you're not going to say something that sounds as though it's worshipful, just keep your mouth closed. Who do, you, who do you think you are, Pastor, telling us what we can say? I thought, what about the freedom of speech? Brethren, you tell me what about the freedom of speech. You find the biblical doctrine of that, and you put it in your constitution. I know the biblical doctrine of the freedom of speech says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth except that which is of the use of edifying. And it is right for a government to limit speech. And burning things. It's right. You said, Pastor, that's a dangerous comment. I know you could get put in jail for preaching things the government tells you not to preach. I'm prepared. I hope I never have to. What if they put you in jail for, for something that's unlawful? What had happened with Peter and John? Brethren, what's new? What are we afraid of? We're afraid some vile mouths are going to be taken off the air? We're afraid we're going to start, we'd actually be able to take our children to certain entertainment things without being afraid that we're going to defile their ears. What are you afraid is going to happen if something clean happens in our nation? Thanksgiving. We need a lot of that here. We need a lot of it. But the second aspect of the effect of the Spirit-filled life is ethical behavior. Not only an increased worshipful spirit, but a profusion of ethical behavior. I've just limited to those terms, but I'm just talking about moral and ethical living. Ethics is a term that, that brings up the thought in my relationship to other people. How I function in context of relationship. When the Spirit fills a man, he's of humble heart. He's of enlightened mind. You don't speak in Psalms if you haven't learned some of them. And if you're going to wait here till we get extraordinary revelations from the sky, you're not going to learn much enmity, brethren. I just predicted. I'm say, I believe I'm safe to say, if you don't study the Bible and learn hymns, and if you don't study your hymn book and learn hymns, and if you don't study spiritual songs and learn them, if you're going to wait for the Holy Spirit to come before you sing, you're not going to sing. Or you're going to pretend that you have the Holy Spirit, and you're going to make out like you're singing spiritual songs, and you're going to be lying to the rest of us. Intelligence. Humility, discipline of emotions. Where did I get all this? Enhanced social conscience. Where did I get all this? In the next section from verse 22 of chapter 5 all the way through verse 9 of chapter 6. 
The whole section describes what it's like when people are filled with the Spirit. You notice in verse 21, subjecting, participial phrase that accompanies the filling of the Spirit. The duty is to be filled, and if you are, and in the context of that, there's going to be an attending, ongoing experience of subjecting yourselves one to another. An attitude of mutual humility, an attitude of awareness of your surroundings and other people, of considerateness. Remember, lack of considerateness was one of the things that grieves the Spirit. Well, what's the opposite of a lack of considerateness? It is to be considerate of the others around me, to notice their needs, to remember they're here. Brethren, why do you brush your teeth and use mouthwash or breath mints? Because you're thinking of other people. I hope it's more than just hope it make thinking of them liking you. I hope it's you actually don't want to bother them. Why do you don't eat your mashed potatoes with your hands? Because you don't want other people to look across the table and, and be nauseated. That's, that's it. Look back at manners. Why should you be considered as brethren? Because you are to do unto others as you would have them to do unto you and thus fulfill the law and the prophets. That's a Christian's life. Well, what happens if a church doesn't have that? If they're quarreling, bitter, insensitive to weeping brethren or rejoicing brethren and not entering into each other's experience willingly and gladly and staying to themselves and not trusting one another and not speaking the truth and hiding my feelings, wearing my mask. What is that? That grieves the Spirit. What happens? How do you get filled with the Spirit? Subjecting yourselves one to another. Putting yourselves under each other. Esteeming one another very highly in love. Preferring one another in honor. Preferring one another in love. Serving one another. Serving the Lord. Diligent in your business. And presenting yourself to each other to help and to notice and to ask questions. And to learn about the need and pray. That kind of atmosphere. You see it worked out in these, in these texts to follow. Wives and husbands. Children and parents. Servants and masters. He addresses the one that's in subjection first, the wife who's under the authority of the husband. He addresses the children first, under the authority of the parents. He addresses the servant first, under the authority of the master. Why? Maybe because God knows that if you decide to be submissive, nobody can stop you. The person that's under authority proves that it's the Spirit that is influencing his life by submitting to even to those who are not fair in their treatment of it. What if your husband's not nice to you? Do you have to submit to him? Yes. How can you? How You can't stand a guy. You'd be filled with the Spirit, that's how. What if your daddy's not nice to you, children? What if your mommy and daddy make a rule that you don't like? Do you have to submit to them and obey them? Yes, you do. How can you? In the Lord, by the Spirit of God. Why are you mad at your mother? Why are you frustrated that you don't get enough attention or have enough toys or didn't get to do what your brother got to do or didn't get to date so-and-so as early as your sister got to date? Why, if you're the oldest child, do you feel that the younger ones get everything and you sort of resent the fact you didn't ever have that? Why do you, like, you have that attitude? Because you're not filled with the Spirit, that's why. Because you're thinking of yourself, that's why. You're not thinking of anybody else, but you, big you. I tell you, you be filled with the Spirit, that's going to change. You wives are going to submit to forward husbands. 
you employees are going to be kind and do your job with a submissive and shut mouth to bosses that don't always know the best thing. And they're going to make decisions that you know are going to mess up things and you're going to appeal and they're not going to listen and you're going to go do what they tell you and you're going to keep quiet and talk to God about it and you're going to say, boy, if that's what the biblical religion is, the Lord really has wrapped me up. But don't you understand when you're filled with the Spirit, you're not worried about all that temporal consequence. It's a whole different realm you're living in. Ethical behavior. And brethren, where wives do not from the heart gladly submit to their husbands, there is no filling of the Spirit and no claims to it. Where husbands don't love their wives, don't talk about the Spirit-filled life. And don't think you're going to get a shortcut to it. You start being nice to your wife. Because those all come under the heading of commandments. He doesn't say, now, by the way, if God gives you this little unction juice at 5.30 in the morning, just before you wake up, called the Spirit for life, then you can love your wife. That's not what he says. Husbands, love your wife. What if she's not submissive? That's her problem. Yours is to love her. What if he doesn't love me? That's his problem. Yours is to submit. You see the principle? The duty is to each one of you, whether you're in authority or under it, to be filled with the Spirit in the context of, in your various relationships, submitting appropriately to the person with whom you're relating. And in the context of the church, an attitude of mutual humility and preferring one another. Now, dear brethren, where this ethical context is not seen, where these behaviors are not typical, let's don't talk about being filled with the Spirit. Well, what's the, the result of all this? The source is God. The root is the word of Christ. The effect is a worshipful spirit and transformed ethical behavior. What's the result? Simply put, it's edification. Others are benefited directly, intelligently, blessedly. Psalm 40, verse 3. Turn with me to that and we'll come to a close. He's speaking of God's application of redemption to him in Psalm 40. A psalm of David written to the chief musician. This is supposed to be put to music, you see. And it better be done skillfully. I want, I want the best music put to this. Verse 3 says, Having brought me up out of the miry clay, out of the horrible pit, he has put a new song. Where? Not just in my heart, but in my mouth. Even praise unto our God. You see, I'm praising God. What's well, nobody else's business. Right? Wrong. The result? Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in Jehovah. Dear brethren, I believe that the best evangelism is the spirit-filled worship of the church of Christ. Not the only evangelism. When people see you in the context of mutual humility, loving God, and see your attitude and the environment of your relationships transformed from this cocky, my rights business to a how can I serve you attitude, you know what? Many will see that in fear and they'll trust the Lord. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Then will I teach transgressors your ways. Then sinners will be converted to you. 
in the atmosphere of a people who have applied the blood of Christ to their souls, who are worshiping a God with thankful hearts who has redeemed them from all their iniquities and who love each other and see in the face of their sinful brethren the face of Christ and the precursor of glory to follow. In that context and atmosphere, God comes, sinners are convicted and they go out saying, God is in this place of assurity. You show me a people though that pick up their hymnal as though it's a chore. Wait around till halfway the first verse and thumb around to find it. About halfway in the last verse, flap it closed, and just about the time we sing the Amen and start to sit down, the hymnal start popping into the racks. Or they start popping into the racks while the man starts to lead the next prayer. You show me a congregation that feels itself at loose ends to do these kinds of things and don't care how they're supposed to do them. I'll show you a, com- a congregation that'll have a hard time convincing sinners who visit that anything in- unusual is happening here. And they may all just decide to go right back to Mass. It's no debtor there. Dear brethren, be being filled with the Spirit. It produces guaranteed results of edification. Joy, melody in the heart, thankfulness for all things always, submissiveness, reciprocal deference. Where these are absent, the Spirit is absent. Where these are weak, The Spirit is not in full measure influencing the life. Well, by implication then, let me draw a couple of implications. Notice that this is a duty. Be being filled. It's not an option. It's not limited to a few select spiritual Christians. It's for all of us. It's a duty. Not just for some, but for all. For the ordinary run-of-the-mill saint, it is his duty to be filled with the Spirit. You know what that tells me? It therefore is a real possibility to be filled with the Spirit. You, little old you, who never thought that was for you, little old sinful you, who's never going to be up to praising God the way some do, who can't preach, you you just figure, well, the spiritual life, that's something I don't know about. Might as, might as well not worry about That's for these people that watch TV and get to know how to send the right offering in at the right time. No, dear brethren. It's for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be filled with the Spirit. It's the ordinary expected portion of everyone who's joined to Christ. What did he say? He that believes on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And thus he spoke concerning the Spirit which he would after give to them that believe on him. To them that believe on him. To them that believe on him. Do you believe on Jesus? Then it is your expected portion to have flowing out of your inward self rivers, ongoing fresh torrents of living water. That's your normal, ordinary portion, dear brethren. Not worrying about tongues, that was for another time, for other exigencies, that, but concerned about your relationships with brethren, your heart and attitude to God, your ethical behavior in every situation, it's for every believer. And it's an attainable experience. God has attached promises. There is no promise in the scripture to prayer more prevalent and more positive than the one of giving the Spirit to those who ask. There's no more confident assurance in the scripture about what you may ask and know you can get it than how much more shall your heavenly Father 
Give the Spirit to them that ask. If you being evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more shall God give? Brethren, why don't you have what we're talking about if you don't? You have not because you ask not. You, you might be, all your life you may have been thinking, the reason I don't have a Cadillac is because I didn't ask for a Cadillac. The reason I don't have enough money is because I didn't ask. But brethren, God really wants you to start setting your sights on other things besides that stuff. The reason you don't have the Spirit is because you didn't ask. The children of Israel got their Cadillac filled with quail. God gave them their desire, we heard earlier today. And with it sent what? Not fullness of soul in the Spirit, but leanness. Which would you prefer? If today you were prevent, presented the option, which would you rather have? A $5,000 increase in your paycheck, a four-bedroom suburban home or country home, a brand new van. If you had the option, and we'll get presented that, no more money worries, your mother's inheritance. Or, if it were the option, or an increased measure of the Lord God in your heart. Would you have to hesitate in your answer? I tell you, you have not because you ask not. Your heart has not asked with a full devotion to wanting one thing. Lord, just give me you and that will be enough. Just give me Jesus and that will be enough. We used to sing a little hymn, Christ is all I need. And one day our pastor, little, there was a little chorus, and one day our pastor said, we're going to change the words. We're going to change it to Christ is all I want. And it smote my heart as a 17-year-old high school student because I couldn't quite bring myself to say that as fully as I knew I ought to say it. I knew he was all I needed. I wasn't sure I was ready to say publicly with a loud, joyous voice, he's all I want. Because the fact was, there were a few things else I wanted. And I'm not saying you have no right to have legitimate desires. I am saying, though, you better make sure you get the right one set first. And if you get it set first, the others will not infringe upon it. The fullness of the Spirit comes to those who want that more than anything else. You shall find me when you shall seek for me with all your heart. And not before, dear brethren. Please may God give us a heart that wants Him and Him alone, that's content with Him if we lose everything else, if we lose our children, if we lose our spouse, if we lose our life. Any man that loves any of those things more than Christ and the gospel cannot be his disciple. May God give us a church full of hearts, full up to the brim, in the Spirit and the things of the Spirit. May He give us a hunger and thirst for Himself and for the things that accompany such intimacies. May God the Spirit live in us and work in us. But I'll say this last word. God the Holy Spirit does not grant this kind of privilege in the face of disobedience to His Word. You will not pray for this and have it while disobeying, knowing any known law of God. You will not. 
get that settled, mister. I'm sorry, you're just not going to have this in the, pro- in the path of disobedience in some area of the law of God. I'm sorry, you won't have it. Alexander says this. Pray constantly and fervently for the influences of the Holy Spirit. We know to do that. Let's do that. We have not because we ask not. No blessing is so particularly and emphatically promised in answer to prayer as this. And if you would receive this divine gift to be in you as well as a well of water springing up to everlasting life, you must not only pray, but you must watch against everything in your heart or life which has a tendency to grieve the Spirit. Of what use is it to pray if you indulge evil thoughts and imaginations almost without control? Or if you give way to the evil passions of anger, pride, avarice, or bridle not your tongue from evil speaking? Learn to be conscientious. That is, obey the dictates of your conscience uniformly. Many are conscientious in some things, and not in others. They listen to the monitor within when it directs to important duties, but in smaller matters they often disregard the voice of conscience and follow present inclination. Such cannot grow in grace. That's an experienced Christian speaking. I agree with him. I must confess I painfully agree with him. But brethren, the Bible is clear. It is in the path of obedience that the blessing of God falls ordinarily on God's people. So there's confession needed here. There's genuine repentance needed here. And there's a heartfelt cry needed here for God the Spirit to come in such measure among us that all the attending factors of worship and ethical behavior follow in the train of the increased influence of the Spirit in full measure in our hearts. May God grant us to have it and to keep it and to grow in it. May God help us to know what we're asking and to love it and enjoy it and possess it forever. Let us pray together.